At dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, until only Jesus and the woman were left. Jesus asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, and neither do I. Go and sin no more. We've been in this series called Shoes, where we are trying on the shoes of various individuals from the scripture, if they actually wore shoes like we wear today. And the idea is that you can learn a tremendous amount about a person when you walk in their shoes for a period of time. The people we're looking at are people who had personal encounters with Jesus. And through these messages, we're gonna be exploring these experiences that these people had and how they actually impacted them in their lives. These people surprisingly are a lot like us. They're, they're normal in, in most ways. They had challenges, questions, issues, and dreams, like most of us do. My hope is that through this study, we too could have an experience with Jesus. Now, this past Christmas, I received a pair of slippers, brand new slippers. And I'll be honest with you, I've never really been a slipper guy until just a few years ago. This past Christmas, I received a brand new pair of slippers, and my daughter, she had done all the research on these slippers to get her dad the best pair of slippers. And here they are. Now, I decided I'm gonna do my best Mr. Rogers impression, and I'm gonna actually put my slippers on and preach in my slippers today. So, if I can get the music. Howdy, neighbor. I'm so glad you came to join me today. You thought I was gonna sing? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Oh well, there, that's all the music we need. This is maybe the only time I'll ever preach in a pair of slippers, but there's a reason for it, because the shoes that we're focusing on today are actually a pair of slippers. They're bedroom slippers. These slippers, they look extremely comfortable. They're they're the type of slipper that you know is always going to keep your feet nice and warm. Your feet just kind of nestle into them. And you'll want to wear them whenever you're in the house. 
The minute you get there, kick the shoes off and put the slippers on. These slippers represent a woman in the Bible. And her story is found in John the 8th chapter, verse 2 through verse 11. We don't know the woman's name. The gospel writer John never tells us her name. And tragically, she's known in scripture solely by the sin that she committed. I'm talking about the woman known as the woman caught in adultery. We pick this up in verse 2 of John chapter 8. At dawn, he appeared again. This is Jesus. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus is teaching in the temple when he is suddenly interrupted by these religious leaders. And they bring, they bring to his attention this sensational situation. Now this group is known as teachers of the law. Sometimes they're referred to as scribes. But they drag a woman into the middle of his teaching and they interrupt his sermon. The accusers say they have caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now how could that have happened? I mean, let's be honest. This kind of sounds a little fishy to me. How could these leaders actually catch people in the act of adultery? Now I started thinking about this a little, just the just how could this logistically happen? Maybe they knew that there was a couple who had an ongoing affair and they just ambushed this couple. That's possible, I guess. But it made more sense to me that they planned this out and set this entire charade up. If that is the case, then this woman that they've just drug into the middle of this service She's a pawn in their conspiracy. Have you noticed lately, probably for the last five to 10 years, how many scammers there are on the internet? Again, this happened to me this week. Someone claiming to me has been sending out emails asking for help. Someone is trying to take advantage of my friends, our staff, our elders, and other owners here at Northeast. The email says that I'm asking for financial help. And the way that you can help is by sending Amazon gift cards. Several people contacted me earlier this week wanting to know if this was legit, that I was in need, or if this was just another scam. Well, it's a scam. I'm doing just fine. And if I ever need help, I promise that I won't be asking for Amazon gift cards. So just know that in the future if you get a request from me. This is the sixth or seventh time this has happened. It's unfortunate that people get taken advantage of financially by these types of scammers. But can you imagine 
this woman standing before Jesus and his disciples, having her reputation completely destroyed. This woman was being taken advantage of. She was being used by the religious elites of that day. Whatever happened prior to this moment that we read here in the text, it's clear from, that, from these, these verses that they apprehended this woman during the actual act of sexual infidelity. This raises a lot of questions in my mind. Who caught her? Was there, where is the man who was involved? Why isn't he here? Why didn't they drag him before Jesus like they did her? Was he possibly one of her accusers? Was he in on this? These teachers of the law, they were experts in Old Testament law, and they were frequently called upon to make legal judgments in their community. Yet in this case, they have disregarded part of the law of Moses by arresting the woman, but not the man. The law required both people to be held accountable when adultery was committed. And it causes one to wonder if the man is somehow involved in this entire charade. We have no definite answers to any of those questions. But there is one editorial comment that is given by John. It's in verse 6. It says this. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They're trying to trap Jesus. This leaves us with the impression that this entire thing was a setup. Well, let's talk about the trap for a minute. The Jewish leaders were trying to pin Jesus down. They're trying to discredit him. You see, if he said, yes, the woman must be executed, then what would happen to his reputation as the friend of publicans and sinners? You know, the, the, the rabbi of the common man. The people would no doubt have abandoned him at that point, And he would never have, they would never have accepted his message about forgiveness. But if he, if he ruled the other way and said, no, the woman should not be executed, then they would openly have him breaking the Old Testament law. And he would be subject to arrest by the Jewish authorities. They seem to have developed the perfect trap as they challenge Jesus. There are two other things that I think are really vital to understand about what this woman was experiencing. And the first is this. She's being charged with a crime that carried with it a death sentence. A death sentence. Now, it may seem extreme to many today that a person would be executed for committing adultery, but that was the clear directive found in the law. Listen to what Leviticus 20, verse 10 says. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. God placed this remarkably high priority on, protect, on protecting the marital covenant. Yet, that's not the matter that these accusers are focused on. Their whole purpose here is they wanted to trap Jesus in an Old Testament legal kind of catch-22 there's no indication 
that the accusers have any concerns about this woman whatsoever. In fact, it is possible that some of those who brought her in and accused her are carrying stones with them. Now, they're not going to stone her here in the temple court. But they just wanted to be ready when the opportunity came. The other thing that is important for us not to skip over is found in the last part of verse 3. It says this, they made her stand before the group. I want you to think about that for a moment. Imagine being ambushed while sinning in such an intimate and private manner, such as adultery. And then the embarrassment aside, they drag her into the middle of a church service. And then it is announced that the reason she's there is because she was caught in the very act of committing adultery. What if that were you? And they said that about you and you, you heard an audible gasp from the congregation and now every eye is focused on you. And some of these people are people you know personally. And you're totally humiliated. You're completely mortified. It's at this moment, you're at your lowest. You are so ashamed. Shame is a self-conscious emotion that informs us internally that we are in a state of inadequacy, unworthiness, and dishonor. Shame can lead us to feel as though our whole self is flawed, bad, or subject to being excluded. Shame motivates us to hide or to do something to try to save face. Shame is an unspoken epidemic which is the secret result that is caused by broken behavior. And you may not know this, but I got a sense that a lot of us do. There are a lot of people carry shame for one reason or another. And in this moment, this woman could do nothing to escape her shame. And on top of that, she has no idea that she's going to be alive in the next few hours. So Jesus responded to the charges against this woman in the last half of verse six and following. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept, kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Without speaking a word, Jesus just knelt down and started to write something on the ground. The scribes, they continue to question Jesus, but he doesn't respond to them. He's just writing in the dirt. We're not sure what. Some speculate maybe he was writing out the Ten Commandments or maybe he was writing some key words that would be clues to the secret sins of those who carried this woman in here and were accusing her. 
the author John, he doesn't help us out here. He doesn't tell us what Jesus is writing. Maybe he's simply doodling. We don't really know. But what John does tell us is the words Jesus says in his response. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now Christians know that everyone is a sinner. That's one of the first things we learn when we come to Christ is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ironically, the only person qualified in that group or in any group at any point in history to throw stones at this woman is the sinless one, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. Then, after speaking, Jesus knelt down again and continued writing in the dirt. Jesus' words hit the accusers hard. And once those words begin to sink in, they start to realize what has happened here. They start to leave, John says, starting with the oldest, and eventually gets down to the youngest. Kenny Rogers sang, no one to hold them, no one to fold them, no one to walk away, no one to run. I doubt you thought I would quote two Rogers, Mr. and Kenny, in this sermon. But after hearing Jesus' response, those who came accusing this woman were under such conviction for their own sins that they folded and they walked away. All of them. And it wasn't as if they felt like Jesus had just outsmarted him. Instead, they were confronted by their own sins and they were feeling their own guilt and their own shame. And before long... Jesus and this woman are the only ones left. Look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and he asked, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Everyone is gone. And Jesus stands up and looks at this woman and says, where are they? Where is everybody? Is no one here left to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. It looks like the prosecution has just abandoned their case. When they walked out, in effect, they were moving for dismissal of this case against this woman. This is an incredible turn of events for this woman, but she isn't totally out of the woods just yet. She still faces one possible judgment. Judgment from Jesus, the one who at the beginning of this entire charade was appointed judge. But Jesus doesn't leave her on the horns of a dilemma for very long. He simply says, neither do I condemn you. And then tells her, go now and leave your life of sin. Somebody might wonder, does this actually mean that Jesus is kind of given a pass on this? You know, winking at the serious nature of this sin of marital infidelity? And the answer is not at all. To be condemned doesn't mean that there is no guilt 
To not be condemned, excuse me, does not mean there is no guilt. In this case, it means this woman is indeed guilty. But from this point forward, she is forgiven of that sin. Jesus gives this woman a final directive. He says to her, leave your life of sin, which probably more accurately could be translated sin no longer or quit sinning. Jesus didn't rescue her so that she could be more careful next time to not get caught the next time she's engaged in this illicit sin. When he says, leave your life of sin, he's asking her to to demonstrate a heart of repentance, which brings us to a key point. Repentance requires a change of direction. Repentance always requires that. This woman had been through an awful lot in that day, and the day had just really begun. But before it's over, she had to make a decision, go back to the way of life that she'd been living, a life that was defined by illicit behavior and infidelity, or to start a new path, walking away from the past paths of sin. Jesus directs her to sin no more, but it's ultimately her decision. Jesus doesn't force her. It's obvious that her sins were what had gotten her into this situation to start with, so she knows the results that come from a life that is sinful. But Jesus offers her forgiveness and a brand new start. Now this story doesn't suggest that we ever ignore sin. It doesn't suggest that the damaging effects that sin has on people's lives is something we should take lightly or or just kind of push to the side. But the scripture does teach that using other people to accomplish our plans is offensive to God. The most offensive sin described in this story, surprisingly, isn't the adultery, though that's offensive More offensive is the self-righteousness, the legalistic hypocrisy, the malice and the arrogance of the teachers of the law to use this woman, no care for her, but to use her and her sin for personal purposes while ignoring the sin that resides in their own hearts. And when Jesus said, he was without sin, cast the first stone at her, He was calling them out about the sin that they had in their hearts. It brings us to a second key point. Treat everyone with respect. I said everyone. I could have said treat sinners with respect, but I think it makes better sense to say everyone because we're all sinners, right? This woman was a pawn in this scheme to try to trap Jesus and discredit him. Her needs and feelings weren't a concern for them. Clearly, they were using her for their purposes, yet even though Jesus was under attack, he showed her respect. He valued her as an individual created by God. Oh, she had made mistakes. Certainly, her sins were real. But Jesus looked at her as though she was special to God. 
because she is. You see, every person is created in God's image and is loved by God. And if you only hear one thing in this talk today, I want you to hear this. God loves you. No matter how far you may feel like you are from him, God loves you. Never forget that. He has a better life than the one you may be following right now. And he's just waiting for you to reach out, to call out to him. Every person is created in the image of God. And every person is loved by God. Therefore, we should value every person like God does. There are two voices that you will hear when you sin. The first voice is the voice of the critic, which seeks to condemn you by exposing all your failures. In fact, the critic will say that your sins are who you are. They define you. They're actually kind of your resume. Contrast that with the voice, the other voice, which is the voice of Jesus, who confronts our sin with love, provides a remedy for sin himself on the cross, and gives us a better way to live. The critic wants to bring you down, but Jesus wants to build you up to give you your best life. So how should we respond when we sin? Well, this passage has often been quoted by people who want to justify their sin. They take it completely out of context. When their sin has been exposed, they arrogantly may say something like, well, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at me. Are you without sin? Of course not. The attitude behind a statement like that completely misses the point of the story Jesus and this woman play out. The woman in this story was guilty. The scribes using this woman didn't make her any less guilty. The law of Moses did call for strict punishment for adultery, but the law also provided a way of forgiveness. And the Bible contains examples of sinners who repented and received forgiveness. In fact, King David is perhaps the most recognized example who himself was guilty of committing adultery. It's important to note that Jesus tells the woman to stop sinning. Jesus identifies what she did as sin. We learn from this story that we should first respond to sin by admitting our sin. Just call it what it is. It's sin. The Bible's clear on this point. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think the word you might want to focus on for a second is all. All. All of us. We're all part of this fraternity. We're all part of sinning. We all fall short. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. Nor did he leave this woman here. It's important to acknowledge that our sin is destructive. We can't, we can't just ignore it. We have to take responsibility for it. 
I think about this story here in John, the eighth chapter. How many marriages were damaged? Was there one marriage or were there two marriages? How many other people were you know, affected by this? Was this woman a mother? Was the man she was involved with a father? Were there children that were affected when the, a marriage or two breaks apart? Others can be impacted by our sins. It reminds me of a similar story. Lisa and her husband were friends of Ann and I's when we first started in ministry back in the early 80s. Lisa had kept a secret for nearly a year. She had had a three-month affair with her boss, which she had ended months, months ago, but the guilt was just eating her up on the inside. One day I went to pick up Lisa's husband to go to a Reds game. He had been trying to reach his wife uh, to tell her about our last-minute trip to Cincinnati. But this was during, you know, pre-cell phone days, and he just wasn't able to reach her. Well, he commented to me, just kind of casually, that she's not going to be happy when she gets home and I've gone, and all she's got is this note that he was writing her. She's going to be upset that I went to the ball game without talking to her. So he's writing this note when Lisa arrives, and I said, your husband's got something to tell you you're not going to be thrilled about, and I was talking about the game. Interestingly, in Lisa's mind, she didn't see me as a friend of her husband's. She saw me as one of the ministers from church, and that my comments indicated that she believed I knew about the affair. I didn't know anything about it. But once her husband turned to her, she started to confess. After a little bit of conversation, she begins confessing to him about this affair. And I couldn't believe it. And all at once, the tears just start pouring out of Lisa. She sat down on the floor and just sobbed. I stepped outside for a few moments. My friend came out, and I could tell he was crushed. You can only imagine. Our sins have the power to hurt other people. We should take responsibility for our sins. Finally, what we learn from this woman's encounter with Jesus is how to respond to sin by accepting the compassion offered by Jesus, the grace, the forgiveness. Jesus is the Savior who rescues us from our sins. He declares that he is the light of the world. He's the hope. John writes this in John, 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The only one with the power and authority to condemn this woman declared that he would not condemn her, but instead he extended to her compassion. He pointed her in a better way, a better direction. He wanted her to know forgiveness. 
This compassion was not just a one-time free pass that enabled her to continue her previous lifestyle. It was not a get-out-of-jail-free card so she could continue playing the sin game. The compassion of Jesus that he gave her was a new life. She was no longer the lowest-ranking member of the community who was covered in shame. She was no longer living by a standard that the critics had set who arbitrarily make these rules about a person's worth. She was freed from the bondage of sin and society's ranking system. And she was set free to walk in the light with Jesus. It was the Apostle John who also wrote in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus didn't condemn the woman, but neither did he overlook her sins. He told her to go and leave her life of sin. He called her to a new and transformed life. Is Jesus calling you to do something similar? Is he calling you to repent from sin that's in your life? Are you ready to step out and accept that forgiveness and begin a brand new life? My friends, don't miss out. Accept the forgiveness offered by Jesus. And then like this woman in John chapter eight, go and sin no more. That is the better life. I told you about Ann and I's friend, Lisa. I don't wanna leave you hanging. I wanna tell you the rest of the story. She cried quite a bit that day. In fact, most of that day and that night and then into the next day. Once she confessed her sin, once the secret was out, she finally released all the guilt and the shame. And then she started taking steps to put her life back together. She prayed, trusting Jesus to forgive her and to heal their marriage. And with the help of the Holy Spirit and some remarkable counselors, I'm thankful that God healed their marriage. And Lisa and her husband are still going strong today, some 30-some years later. There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is freedom in Jesus. Even when the world comes down on you, even when the world uses you, ridicules you, condemns you, remember, Jesus will save you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word that illuminates so many amazing qualities of Jesus. And we see one right here. I think all of us can empathize with this woman in the story in one way or another. Our heart goes out to her because she was 
just used by these leaders to try to trap Jesus. And her shame and her, her sin and all of that was just rolled out in front of everyone. Nobody really cared about her except Jesus. She seemed to be all alone, humiliated, ashamed. We know she was taken advantage of. No one seems to care much about her. But Jesus shows her that he valued her. She was important to him. He gave her hope. He gave her compassion. And he offered her forgiveness. I'm grateful that you still offer that to sinners today, Lord. Lord, I want to pray for those who may be caught in a sin and they think, I can't get out of it. It's like a bear trap and I just can't get away. Lord, I pray that they would hear your voice today and know that with your power and strength, anything is possible. You are able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And I know, God, there's not one person who's struggling with a sin that can't be set free by, from that sin by you. Jesus, you truly are the one who saves. And for that, we praise you today. And I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Man, what a beautiful truth that we unpack today that when, when Christ is in you, his righteousness covers you. And that means that you are forgiven, you are loved, you are redeemed, you are desired. And look, if you want to continue the conversation or even start the conversation for the first time about who you are in Christ, reach out to us. I encourage you, take that, take that bold next step in your faith. You can shoot us a direct message right here, or you can go to ncclex.org slash connect. You know, we'd love to just take steps alongside you in Listen, like I mentioned earlier, man, we're so excited about Easter, so excited about what's to come. And we've been, we've been um, man, like walking around this place with anticipation and praying and expectation of what God is going to do, but also knowing that we've got some things to do to get ready for it. And so I want to make you aware of, of a few changes, a few things, improvements that are coming up that you're going to notice starting next Sunday, starting March 21st, okay? Two things specifically in the lobby that you'll see when you come in to Northeast. The first is when you walk in, uh, just off to your right, you're gonna see a new here hub, okay? Very simple, and that's exactly what it is. It's a spot, it's a meeting place, a gathering place for folks who are new around Northeast. You know, we wanted to simplify um, that, that step for people. So, hey, whether, whether that's you, you've been here for a little while or, or you're about to come back um, or you've been tuning in for quite some time, we encourage you swing by the New Here Hub and, and begin a conversation. And, um, but, but that's what it's for. So when you walk in, you'll kind of have an idea. Hey, this New Here spot, and we're just trying to be um, as conducive and welcoming to folks who are new here at Northeast. Now, the other shift that's kind of taking place has to do with our children's check-in process. And, and let, me, let me say, first of all, families, thank you so much for, um, for just helping out as we've 
we've introduced man, all the social distancing and touchless check-in and pre-registration and all those things that you're continuing to do week in and week out that really help the process flow smoothly. And we've just been watching that and evaluating it and asking ourselves, could it be better? And if so, how? And let's make it happen. And so a couple of quick things, starting March 21st, we'll actually have a kid spot in the lobby, it will mirror this new here hub. It'll be on the opposite side of the lobby and um, it, it'll be a spot for new families to get introduced to Northeast and to check in their kids right there in the lobby and then be escorted by like a wayfinder to their respective environments. All right, and so that will be there for new families for Easter and beyond. And, and then there's a couple of other shifts. But let me just say first, like if you have a little one, like a baby, a toddler, preschooler, kindergartner, uh, the, the process really doesn't change very much. You, you will continue to go down the east wing hallway and you'll check in and drop off right there as you normally have. However, here's kind of the shift. And this is, this is again, it, it's fueled by mission of trying to make this place as conducive and efficient and safe as possible for our church family and our community. So if you have a first through fifth grader, we're going to ask that you that you enter the elementary environment through our main lobby stairwell. So you come in the main lobby, you'll go up the stairwell, and you'll follow that into our elementary environment. You'll, you'll get checked in and dropped off there, and then you will continue going down the, um, the east wing stairwell to exit. So one continuous flow to drop off and come down. And then right after service, when you would normally go pick up your kid, you, you follow the same path go up the stairwell in the main lobby, pick up your kid, and then come down the east wing stairwell. So look, we know that, that change means transition. That means like you have to learn new rhythms and patterns. And we are so grateful and that, that you guys are so eager to help us continue improving so that we can have the most conducive environments for our community and our church family. And so this will help in three specific areas. It'll help us be more welcoming to new families. Hey, we've got um, tremendous opportunity to share hope and point people to Jesus right here in 4509 and beyond. And so we expect to meet new families and, and we want to, to be prepared when they show up. So it'll help us welcoming new families. It'll help us be more efficient with our traffic flow. All right, this, this makes a bit more sense to be able to, to maintain social distancing, but also be efficient in the process. It'll help meeting new families. It'll help with traffic flow. And then finally, it'll help us maintain social distancing. Hey, listen, we're, we're so excited that our community is taking steps to opening up, that schools are beginning to open and, and more and more people are showing up. And so we wanna do so in a responsible way. We wanna continue loving our community in a safe way. And this will really help us do that. But like we said, hey, we know change, change just means that, that things shift up and, and this impacts many of you and we understand that. And, and so we wanna make ourselves available. Listen, if you have questions, if, if you have concerns or you just want to know more about the vision behind this, we welcome conversation with you. You can reach out to me directly. You can talk with, with Monty or any of our children's ministry team members. We would love to continue partnering with you and shedding light to the vision behind all of this. And so again, hey, thank you so much, families, for, for being eager to make this a conducive place to introduce kids to Jesus. All right. Hey, I know that's a lot and we're wrapping up. And so I just want to, again, say thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. And finally, hey, thank you for your generosity, your, your tithes and offerings and 
financial resources continue to propel the mission of Northeast and we're so grateful for it. You know, again, there's all kinds of ways to give and really it's not about how or how much. We're just grateful that you do. Thank you for being with us in this. We'll see you real soon.